Good morning. It is Kale and Company live right here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Great to have you with us on this Monday morning, a Monday morning where we are faced with another winter storm warning. Storm is going to move in. I looked at the maps, did the research, and found out that precipitation is going to start late this afternoon into tonight and intensify overnight and be almost an all-day thing tomorrow, I guess, from uh, the way the maps and the charts uh, look right now. So uh, uh, there you have it. Our weather bug forecasters will uh, keep us uh, up to date on that as uh, we continue. But uh, just uh, be safe out there. I'm sure there will be a lot of uh, uh, postponements, a lot of cancellations, a lot of uh, delays and and what have you. But uh, all you can do is uh, ride it out, make the best of it, and know that uh, winter will be over soon. Is everybody now adjusted to the new time? It is uh, well, live. It is 8.09 on uh, Monday morning. If you're listening to this at night, obviously it's not. It's uh, like 7.09 p.m. Uh, but at any rate, it is Kale and Company, and uh, I imagine a lot of people... Uh, Stayed up late to watch the Academy Awards last night. Uh, everything, everywhere, all at once was the big winner of the night. Named Best Picture at the 95th Academy Awards. Capping off an improbable awards season run by winning the movie business's highest honor. The the film, now I'm, I'm reading from Variety, which is, you know, the show business Bible pretty much. Uh, the film, a, a gonzo adventure, as they describe it, about a Chinese-American laundromat owner grappling with an IRS audit and an interdimensional, uh, interdimensional attackers earned seven statues, including original screenplay and directing honors for its creators, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Schneiert, collecti- collectively known as... The Daniels, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Shiner. The victory is a triumph for A24, which is the indie studio that pushed the zany film to an impressive $100 million at the box office. A stunning achievement at a time when the market for arthouse movies has shriveled. The studio also managed the rare feat of nabbing all four acting honors three of which were taken by everything, everywhere, all at once, and one by the whale. And we'll talk about that in a moment. It was a night of comebacks and reassessments. Everything, everywhere, all at once as Michelle Yao became the first Asian woman to be recognized as Best Actress. The honor came after a long career in martial arts and action movies like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Yes, Madam. Yao said, ladies, don't ever let anyone tell you that you are past your prime. For all the little boys and girls who look like me watching tonight, this is a beacon of hope and possibilities, she added as she was holding the Academy Award. Now, the best actor went to Brendan Fraser. 
He took Best Actor honors for his performance as a morbidly obese man trying to reconnect with his estranged daughter in The Whale, uh, which I thought was a uh, terrific movie, no doubt about that. But, uh, Kat, you, we were talking a little bit about this uh, before we went on today, and uh, quite a comeback for uh, Brendan Fraser. He was uh, once a prominent actor known for his work in uh, popcorn-like movies such as George of the Jungle and The Mummy, and uh, apparently had spent the last decade uh, away from the spotlight dealing with uh, health and personal struggles. So, Kat, quite a comeback story for Brendan Fraser. Great to see. I love him so much. I was really happy to see him come back. You know, mental health is a real thing, and uh, it took its toll on him. So to see him win all of these awards and get this recognition is really important. And uh, I'll tell you, he uh, was very emotional about it uh, in accepting the award. Uh, he was uh, had uh, tears in his eyes, was sobbing up there, but uh, made a, a great speech a great acceptance speech when uh, he was uh, awarded the Oscar, and uh, it just—it's uh, a great story, and I was very happy to uh, to see him win. And I saw that movie, and uh, I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed that movie, uh, The Whale, uh, very much. And uh, he said, "I started in this business uh, 30 years ago, and this—they certainly didn't come easy to me, but there was a facility that I didn't appreciate at the time until it stopped." Uh, Frazier acknowledging his career setbacks, he thanked his direct, uh, director, Darren Arofsky, for throwing me a creative lifeline and hauling me aboard. So uh, there you go, Brendan Frazier. And uh, best lead actress, as we said, Michelle Yao from Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which, uh, you know, I saw bits and pieces of it the other day uh, on one of the uh, platforms. Very, very bizarre movie. Very bizarre movie. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Uh, best director, Daniel Kwan, Daniel Scheinert for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And uh, let's see, other, other notable awards here as we scroll through them. The best original score, which uh, John Williams was nominated for, for The Fablemans, making him the oldest ever Academy Award nominee John Williams, the uh, great uh, former conductor of the Boston Pops Orchestra, a great musician, a great uh, songwriter, conductor. Uh, he had the, the original score for the Fablemans, but the winner of the best original score was All Quiet on the Western Front. For those who might have seen the, uh, the short films, the documentary short films, they uh, showed them at uh, Red River Theater, and the, the winner of the best documentary short film was actually the one I thought was going to win, which doesn't happen very often. Uh, but The Elephant Whisperers turned out to be the best documentary short film. So there you go. Best Supporting Actress, believe it or not, her first Oscar ever for Jamie Lee Curtis in... Everything, everywhere, all at once. In fact, uh, she got punched out in that movie by Michelle Yao. Uh, best supporting actor was Ki Hu Kwan from Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. So, as you could tell, uh, they certainly uh, captivated the uh, 
the awards and, uh, and, and those folks who vote on the Academy Awards. And congratulations uh, to them. At any rate, uh, that's the, our little synopsis of the Academy Awards. I'm sure when Friday rolls around, our resident flick chick, Kitty Ray, will have uh, her thoughts on what took place last night uh, in Hollywood. Some disappointment for local basketball teams uh, yesterday in Durham in uh, the Division II Boys Championship game. Uh, Pembroke Academy lost to Pelham by three points, and if you have an edition of uh, this morning's Concord Monitor, you will see on the front page that Pembroke head coach Mike Donnell is comforting uh, one of his players after a very tough loss uh, yesterday in the uh, Division Division II uh, boys finals, which was played at uh, 10 o'clock yesterday morning. And a heartbreaking loss for the um, Bow girls in the Division II Girls Championship. Uh, Bo had a 37-36 to 36 lead as time was expiring on the clock. A foul was called against Bo, uh, resulting in a couple of foul shots for their opponent yesterday, Kennett. Kennett High School from uh, Conway, New Hampshire. And uh, the girl who was fouled made both of her free throws with no time left on the clock, to give Kennett a 38-37 victory. So heartbreaking losses yesterday for the Pembroke boys and the Bow girls at the University of New Hampshire. But both teams, uh, the Bow girls and the Pembroke boys, had terrific seasons, nothing to be ashamed of, and... Uh, Hang, uh, don't hang your heads because uh, you you played extremely well from start to finish, and uh, you know you had uh, great seasons. Don't let one setback get in the way from uh, all you accomplished during the course of the regular season and early on in the playoffs. We will take a break, and then coming up after the break, we'll be uh, chatting with. An author who uh, wrote a book a number of years ago about President Jimmy Carter. It is called Redeemer. And we'll be uh, talking with Professor Randall Balmer from Dartmouth College right after we take this break. Kale and Company Live presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Northeast Delta Dental has individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle Learn more and find your plan at DeltaDentalCoversMe.com. Back after these words, Kale and Company, 107, I should say 1450 AM, 101.9 FM, and around the clock at NHTalkRadio.com. Kale and Company live here on WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com. And uh, by the way, a belated happy birthday to our good friend and colleague, A.J. Kirstead, who uh, celebrated a birthday over the weekend. Happy birthday, A.J. And right now, we welcome back to the show Professor Randall Balmer, a prize-winning historian, author of more than a dozen books, and he holds the uh, John Phillips Chair in Religion at Dartmouth College. And... Uh, we welcome you back, Professor Balmer. Great to have you with us. 
Good to be here. How are you this morning? I'm doing just fine. And uh, when you were on the show uh, a while ago, we discussed your book, uh, Passion Plays. And today we're going to chat about uh, a book you wrote uh, quite a few years before that called Redeemer, The uh, Life of Jimmy Carter. And what was your inspiration to uh, write the uh, Jimmy Carter autobiography? Well, I had been following his career for a long time. He kind of emerged on the scene in the early 1970s when I was an undergraduate at a small evangelical college. And he was speaking our language. He would talk about himself as a born-again Christian, talked about uh, his uh, Sunday school classes and being a Southern Baptist. And that was language that uh, we used to describe ourselves. What was striking to me, however, is that he was unabashed about doing so. We were always a little bit sheepish about that, those sorts of labels and those sorts of identifications. But Jimmy Carter uh, robustly embraced his uh, religious beliefs and uh, sought to uh, enact them as uh, as both a person as, and as a politician. So I guess my interest in Jimmy Carter goes back a very, very long time, and I decided a few years ago that I finally wanted to write a biography, and one that uh, treated his faith seriously because he treated his faith seriously, and that's, uh, that's uh, sort of the niche that I think the book occupies. And that hasn't always been the case with uh, somebody running for the White House or occupying the White House. Well, that's right, yes. Uh, and like we have to remember, too, that he came out of the scene in the, on the heels of Watergate. Right. Uh, Lyndon Johnson had lied to us about Vietnam, and Richard Nixon had lied about pretty much everything. And so Jimmy Carter bursts onto the scenes, and he says, I'm not going to lie to you. And Americans, and I remember this very clearly, it, it was, uh, we, we took to that. It was bracing uh, to think that a politician might not lie to us. And uh, parenthetically, whatever you think about Jimmy Carter or his presidency, uh, that's uh, one pledge that he did not, uh, he did not break. The, the, and uh, nobody, nobody has seriously accused him of, uh, of reneging on that pledge. Yeah, as is the case with uh, all of your books, it was extensively researched. And uh, how long did it take to uh, to to work the uh, write the the entire book, including the research that went into it? Well, the research probably, I suppose. Oh goodness, it wasn't a single project uh, that I worked on, but I imagine probably seven, eight years yeah. uh, altogether. Yeah. Although the write, I tend to write fairly quickly, so the writing actually. And was done in a couple of months. <laughs> I don't like to say that because people don't quite believe it. But, uh, that's in fact what happened. <laughs> well, once you set your mind to something, you you go after it, right? Yeah. It's true. Yeah. With the writing, it tends to be quick, pretty yeah. fast. But you know, it is years of preparation, really, going into it. Well, you knew a lot about uh, Jimmy Carter going into your research. I'm sure, uh, following him, uh, you know, back uh, from the early '70s on. But uh, what did you learn in in your extensive research? Well, I, I guess what I came away from the project most was was a sense of him as a person. Uh, he's he's a very private man, and you wouldn't think that for a politician. Uh, in fact, as I was writing the book, I I came to conclude that there were kind of two poles of presidential personalities. One of them is Bill Clinton, who, of course, is, is <laughs> endlessly gregarious. And uh, the other is Jimmy Carter, who really struck me as an introvert. I, I came away from the project thinking that the only person he fully trusts was his wife, Rosalind. And 
uh, I guess that's one of the impressions I came away with from that from that project. But uh, he certainly was very cooperative and uh, very kind and very gracious. But he's just not the garrulous person that somebody like Bill Clinton. <laughs> right. So did did you uh, interview him? I, I have not read the book, unfortunately. But did you have the chance to uh, interview him during the the course of your research? I did. He. I had a policy that he didn't want people writing about him to contact them early, or rather to contact him early in the process. That is to say, he didn't want people just kind of out there on fishing expeditions. Right. He wanted the the project pretty well completed before he weighed in on that. And so I, you know, obviously I, I wanted to uh, to observe his uh, his wishes, and so it was really. Uh, for the most part, later in the project, that I was able to to talk to him. Although I had met him earlier on a couple of occasions and, and had some interactions as I was writing the book. One of the ways you describe him in the book is uh, that of a striver. Would you uh, explain that? Oh, absolutely. And let's remember that uh, Jimmy Carter was born. Uh, he certainly was was more affluent. That is, his, his family was more affluent than their neighbors. But that is that's a statement that has to be understood in relative terms. Yeah. He grew up on a farm in Archery, Georgia, three miles outside of Plains, Georgia. He walked to school every day, uh, very often barefoot, because um, he was a country boy. And uh, the Carter farmhouse didn't have electricity until he was fourteen years old. Uh, so. Uh, he understood himself as trying to make his way in the world. Uh, there are a couple of wonderful anecdotes from his childhood. He had a favorite teacher in, in college, in the, I'm sorry, in in, uh, in grade school, in Plains, the Plains Public Schools, Julia Coleman, who herself was a reader, and she would go to the Chautauqua Institute, Institution every summer and come back all inspired about uh, books and learning and that sort of thing. And, she challenged young Jimmy Carter to start reading more assiduously. And no. so uh, he picks up uh, Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace as a 13-year-old <laughs> okay. and, and gets through that book. Wow. <laughs> but he, 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 was, uh, he was an ambitious man. There's no question about that. And he understood himself as, as uh, an outsider. I think to some degree he had a chip on his shoulder because he was not wealthy. Certainly in the ranks of presidents, he was not a wealthy man. And after he left the presidency, um, after the bitter 1980 presidential defeat, he and Rosalind, of course, went back to Plains and found that his business interests, which he had placed into a blind trust, uh, again, this is after the Nixon era, um, his business interests were uh, decimated. And uh, he had to make sense of that. He sold his interests and was able to get a book contract. But, uh, you know, again, he was never poor by the standards of most people, but by the standards of other presidents, he certainly did not uh, live a life of luxury. He was not on the uh, the radar of, uh, of many people until uh, the, uh, you know, the mid-70s, let's say. I know his 66 uh, campaign, 1966 campaign for governor of Georgia was uh, not successful. Uh, tell us about uh, that uh, campaign in 66. He was running for the Democratic nomination, and his uh, principal rival was Lester Maddox. And um, I'm sure many of your listeners remember Lester Maddox, sure. but others probably don't. Uh, Lester Maddox uh, kind of became 
notorious <laughs> on the day after Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The day uh, later, that is July 3rd, 1964, several African Americans were coming to his restaurant, the Pickrick Restaurant in Atlanta, and Lester Maddox intercepted them in the parking lot with an axe handle and told them they were not welcome in his restaurant. And that made him a kind of folk hero to the to the you know to, to the white crowd to the um, segregationists there in Atlanta and in Georgia, and he rode that to the governorship in 1966. Jimmy Carter, of course, was uh, defeated and uh, he, utterly disconsolate. Uh, friends talked about watching him or seeing him around planes, uh, just kind of wandering aimlessly in the fields with his head down, trying to figure out why and in. in, in why it was possible that he, as a racial moderate, was uh, losing or had lost to Lester Maddox. It's been that he had this famous conversation with his sister, Ruth Carter Stapleton, who was a Pentecostal evangelist. And Jimmy Carter, at that point, uh, makes a decision to rededicate his life to Jesus. And he goes on uh, two uh, week-long mission trips and then... uh, decides to run a second time for governor of Georgia in 1970, and that turns his uh, political fortunes around. Well, we'll talk about that campaign and more with our uh, guest, Randall Balmer, uh, professor at uh, Dartmouth College in Hanover. And the book we're discussing today is Redeemer, The Life of Jimmy Carter. We'll take a break. Kale and Company Live continues right here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Kale and Company live here on WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com. Presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Very pleased to have with us... Our guest from the Upper Valley, Professor Randall Balmer from Dartmouth College, author of many books. Uh, is your latest uh, Passion Plays the one we talked about several months ago? It is, yes. Yep. The latest is Passion Plays. Yep. Well, what, what are you Religion working on? Religion and sports. What, what's that? <laughs> Religion and sports, yes. Yes, yeah. And uh, are you working on something right now? I am, actually. I'm working on a biography of Mark Hatfield. Ah, yep. Mark Hatfield was Republican senator from Oregon for 30 years. He was elected in 1966, and he is arguably the last liberal Republican in America. <laughs> liberal Republican, um, Mark Hatfield, yes. Yeah, yeah. well, he was uh, an early opponent of the war in Vietnam, and uh, he maintained his... Um, his integrity really uh, quite remarkably over a long political career. And uh, he was uh, also an evangelical Christian, very much uh, in the progressive evangelical tradition. And a fascinating individual. Got to know him a little bit before he, his death in uh, 2011. And uh, he's a very impressive man. Today we're talking about uh, Redeemer, the uh, life of Jimmy Carter. We mentioned that uh, he lost the the gubernatorial uh, election, the the primary to Lester Maddox in 1966, and then went on to run in uh, 1970 for governor of Georgia. And uh, he he turned out uh, to be the winner, but uh, some say perhaps uh, 
a campaign that he was not necessarily proud of. Absolutely. He didn't uh, talk much about it, uh, to be honest. And I think he was, well, I know he was deeply, deeply ashamed of it because toward the end of the campaign, he began to uh, court some of the segregationist vote and uh, it left a bitter taste in his mouth. He was successful, of course, and he sought to do better. And he did. He famously said in his inaugural address as governor of Georgia on January 12, 1971, that the time for racial discrimination is over. And uh, those were not mere words. Uh, It was not an empty pledge. He sought, uh, in terms of his policies, particularly in uh, prison reform, corrections, but also in his appointments, and symbolically to show his his moderate racial leanings. Uh, He installed three portraits of African-Americans in the Georgia State Capitol, including Martin Luther King Jr. So uh, he was was sincere about that. And I think we also have to take seriously the African-Americans who uh, uh, supported him throughout his political career, including Andrew Young, who was the uh, Carter appointment to be ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, They took seriously the fact that uh, Jimmy Carter was uh, very much on their side. But uh, the 1970 campaign was a a blot on Jimmy Carter's uh, overall record. And then uh, prior to even uh, finishing his his first uh, term as governor of Georgia, he decided to uh, run for the presidency. And uh, how important uh, a factor were evangelicals in his ultimate uh, election and his election victory? I think they were very important. Uh, He actually pretty much split the evangelical vote with Gerald Ford. So on the face of it, that doesn't seem to be that crucial. But when you consider the percentage of evangelical voters who supported Democratic candidates before that, it was a very uh, large improvement. And I think he would have well, he was headed for a landslide victory, and then the Playboy interview appeared on newsstands on September 20th, oh, yes. yep. 1970. That infamous interview, yes. <laughs> where he said that he had, uh, the, the thing that the press picked up was that uh, he had lusted after women other than his wife. And, uh, you know, I, I, I get a chuckle out of that. I mean, it was not, it was a serious matter at the time for Carter because he dropped 15 percentage points in the polls after the interview came out. But that statement in itself for, for evangelicals is utterly unremarkable. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, you've heard it said that you should not kill your brother. I tell you, if you hate your brother, it's as though you killed him. You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look on someone else with lust, it's as though you've committed adultery. It's, it's an utter, utterly unremarkable statement for uh, people of faith and people who are biblically literate. But the press played it up, and you know, there's a famous uh, editorial cartoon that showed Jimmy Carter staring at the statue, statue of Liberty in a state of undress and so forth. <laughs> and it, uh, that, that really did hurt him. <laughs> no. But he, he said he wouldn't lie, so there, there, there you go, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, he was being honest. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, and the other thing about that interview was that the reason for uh, for doing it, the reason he agreed to do that, was he wanted to dispel the notion that he was sanctimonious and self-righteous and holier-than-thou, that sort of thing. So I think his motives probably were 
fairly good and 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 and, and even politically sound, but um, uh, it was a miscalculation on his part. Well, as you alluded to earlier, his presidency was regarded by many as a as a failed one. But uh, I, I don't think uh, your take is exactly that. And it's not. I think uh, certainly I've said many times that I think Jimmy Carter was dealt a bad hand as president. And it's a hand that in some ways he played badly. Now, let's remember what was happening in the 70s. You had the Arab oil embargo. You had interest rates that were approaching 20 percent and sometimes higher than 20 percent. Uh, you had a persistently sour economy. And uh it was just was not an easy time to be president. And then, of course, you had the taking of the hostages in Iran mm. in November of 1979. I've often said that 1979 for Jimmy Carter was his uh, horrible, terrible, very bad year. <laughs> Everything that could go wrong seemed to go wrong in 1979, and culminating in the hostage situation. But also you had the Three Mile Island nuclear disaster in Pennsylvania, you even had disco demolition night in yeah, Chicago, Kaminsky right. Park. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Every, everything was going wrong for for, for Jimmy Carter. I've, you know, the historians like to play these uh, kind of fanciful games sometimes. And uh, one of mine is, uh, and people forget this, but uh, Ronald Reagan very nearly captured the Republican nomination from Gerald Ford in 1976. And I've often speculated that had Reagan won the nomination and gone on to win the presidency in 1976, I suspect that he, too, would have been a one-term president, uh, which is not to say anything uh, critical of, of Reagan necessarily, but just to say that the being president in the late 1970s was not an easy task, and uh, poor Jimmy Carter, he yeah. really got hammered by uh, by various circumstances. Nope. And again, I, I acknowledge that he didn't he didn't play all of them uh, right in, in retrospect, but he certainly did the best he could. Uh, president Carter certainly uh, has achieved more than most uh, presidents following his, his one term in the White House. Uh, he has had a great second act, as it were, beginning with uh, the establishment of the uh, Carter Center in 1982 and certainly uh, a key figure in Habitat for uh, Humanity. He's just done done wonders uh, following his presidency. I sometimes refer to it as Jimmy Carter's magnificent se- second term. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, uh, you're absolutely right. I, I think uh, historians agree, and I think most Americans agree, that he's had a, a remarkable post-presidency. My favorite quote about Jimmy Carter comes from uh, James Laney, who was the president of Emory University, at the time of the formation of the, the Carter Center. And uh, James Laney said that Jimmy Carter is the only person in history for whom the White House was a stepping stone. And I think it captures uh, nicely what Carter has done. Um, Mr. Carter told me himself, um, we, were, we were talking about this, and he said that uh, it's very likely, had he won a second term, that he would not have done uh, many of the things that he did after the, after the White House. That is to say that uh, he would not have been uh, quite so energetic and determined to uh, do the the work that he's done. And if you look at the Carter Center and its accomplishments, they're really quite remarkable in terms not only of, of monitoring elections around the world, but uh, the Carter Center has uh, successfully eradicated several tropical diseases through its efforts uh, around the world, particularly in third world countries. 
So it's uh, really quite a remarkable record, and I think uh, he should be proud of it, and I think he is proud of it, frankly. No, no question about that. And I know the book uh, is still available, correct? It is, yes. Yeah, and uh, just just go online and Google Redeemer uh, and uh, the life of Jimmy Carter, and uh, you will certainly come across it. And uh, I'm I'm looking forward to uh, reading it myself, especially after having a, a chat with you. Uh, fascinating, fascinating book, and. Uh, I guess we have to wrap it up. I hear the music, but uh, Professor <laughs> Professor Balmer, we appreciate you coming back on with us, and uh, I'm sure we'll have you back, and uh, we, we appreciate uh, all that you do. I always enjoy it, Ken. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Professor Randall Balmer from uh, Dartmouth College, and again, the book is Redeemer, The Life of Jimmy Carter, and uh, I'm sure we'll have uh, Professor Balmer back in the not-too-distant future. We'll take a break, and then we'll talk some hockey, Hockey East to be specific, and what a Saturday transpired in Hockey East. And uh, we will talk with our friend John Leahy about that. Right after these words, it's Kale and Company Live on WKXL, presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Northeast Delta Dental has individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. Learn more and find your plan at Delta Dental coversme.com Back to talk hockey right after these words on WKXL nhtalkradio.com Kale and Company live right here WKXL nhtalkradio.com A delight to have you along with us on this Monday morning as uh, we prepare for more snow, believe it or not. More snow on the way, uh, starting, uh, well, according to the uh, latest that we're hearing, uh, it, the precipitation will start maybe mixed uh, later this afternoon, intensify uh, later at night, and intensify uh, even more in the early morning hours of Tuesday. So uh, just prepare for that. There'll be plenty of cancellations and delays, I am sure. And right now, without any further ado, uh, joining us is the longtime voice of the Merrimack College Hockey Warriors. Uh, that would be John Leahy. John, welcome back to the program. Ken, thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure talking with you. Well, John, it is great to have you with us. And uh, I'll tell you what, what an amazing quarterfinal round of the Hockey East men's tournament on uh, Saturday. And none more of a nail-biter than the game you broadcast with uh, your Warriors and the Boston College Eagles. Yeah, it was uh, a tremendous night all around. A tremendous day of hockey, really, Ken, with the four games that were uh, played. But, uh, yeah, we went into uh, double overtime against Boston College on Saturday night, uh, 0-0 throughout. And then uh, Merrimack finally was able to sneak one by Mitch Benson and uh, advance to the uh, Hockey East semifinals at the Garden this Friday. But got to tip my hat to Boston College, Ken. They were a tremendous opponent and uh, really a tremendous game all around. It was fun to call as well. It was fun to listen to, fun to watch, and uh, boy, what an electric atmosphere at the uh, Lawler Rink on uh, on Saturday night. And uh, John, it's the uh, the first time that Merrimack's been to the Garden in quite some time. Yeah, uh, first time in twelve years, Ken. Uh, 
the last time they were there was in the, the 2011 season, which is the year that they went to the national tournament. Merrimack won uh, the semifinal that year at the Garden as they beat UNH, ironically, and then uh, lost to Boston College, again ironically, in the championship game. So uh, Merrimack draws UMass Lowell, Ken, on uh, Friday night. Should be a tremendous battle once again. And uh, Merrimack uh, will play, uh, if Merrimack is able to succeed, they would then play the winner of Providence and BU on Saturday night. Well, uh, two uh, great matchups, no doubt about that. Uh, Providence uh, getting by Northeastern in overtime as well. Just one overtime there at Northeastern, but uh, Providence moved on with a 2-1 to win in OT against Northeastern. Uh, UMass Lowell eliminated UConn. Two to one. I guess the only uh, lopsided matchup was that uh, seven to three uh, BU victory over the Catamounts of Vermont. But all the others were one goal games. And uh, boy, what a, a semifinal round it should be on Friday. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you know, you mentioned the Vermont BU game. Uh, the Catamounts uh, played up in Maine uh, a couple of days earlier in the opening round. Right. And so they had a lot of travel that they were dealing with. They had to drive uh, down to Boston immediately after the game in Orono. And I really think that the, the uh, travel might have caught up with the Catamounts. BU was rested as the number one seed. But uh, no, you're right, Ken. We should have two tremendous games on uh, Friday. Providence and BU will be the early game. It'll be at 4 o'clock. You can see it on Nesson. And then our game is at 7.30 with UMass Lowell again on Nesson. And uh, Tom Cameron will have the call for both games. Well, uh, two uh, two great matchups on uh, uh, Friday. What, what a great ticket that would be to see uh, both of those games live and in person at the TD Garden. Uh, I guess there are probably some seats available, but probably not too many at this point. Yeah, I'm working on getting my wife a ticket. I'd like to have her sitting in the Merrimack section, if possible. There, there you uh, go. But, uh, no, tickets are still on sale. You can get them at the uh, TD Garden box office. And uh, I believe each of the four member schools also are providing uh, ticket opportunities for their fans. So, But, yeah, if you can't be at the Garden, check it out on Nesson. Uh, again, two tremendous games coming up. Now, John, you, you've been calling sports of all kinds for, for many years right now. Where, where does that uh, broadcast on uh, Saturday night, the, the one nothing double overtime win against Boston College, where does that rank on your list? Oh, oh, it's definitely up near the top, Ken. I know it's the second longest game I've ever called with Merrimack. We had a double overtime game at Northeastern back in 2015 in the playoffs that lasted longer. But I will say this. Uh, I've been broadcasting games at Lala Rink for almost 18 years now, and I can tell you that that was the loudest I have ever heard that rink. And it, what made it amazing is that the students were on spring break. Yeah, yeah. But still, still, the fans came out. It was loud. It was electric. The band was going. Uh, I, I had a hard time hearing my commercials in my headset. <laughs> uh, we, uh, we did the radio broadcast, uh, as we're going to continue to do for the rest of the playoffs, but uh, no, it was an incredible, uh, loud, electric uh, atmosphere at Lalo Rink, and it was just a great hockey game between two great hockey teams. You'll take that anytime, right? Oh, man, what it was, and it certainly translated uh, onto the TV screen as well. I, I mean, just the intensity and uh, and the noise uh, in, in the building was really something, and, and what a game. I mean, that was a heart-stopping game, and uh, just, a, just a terrific one. And uh, I know it, it does have to rank uh, up 
on your list as uh, one of the greatest games that, uh, that you have ever called. But I'm sure there are more uh, coming up in, in the not-too-distant future. So uh, how do you look at the matchups on uh, on this, on Friday, first of all, the uh, Providence-BU matchup? Well, uh, you know, on paper, I think you'd have to uh, classify BU as the favorite. But, you know, Providence has strung together a couple of strong games in a row here, particularly defensively. And Nate Lehman is a coach who knows how to win. I think Providence is going to give BU every uh, ounce of effort. I think, uh, you know, it's possible BU could escape with a win, but it's not going to be easy. Uh, Boston will uh, be... Uh, really a neutral site for both teams, but, uh, you know, BU being closer, I think the, the fan uh, uh, proportion might be in their their favor. But uh, I predict a good game. I, I think BU uh, should be able to squeak it out. But uh, And our game will be incredible because it's the battle for Merrimack Valley yeah. hockey right There you go. The, the River Hawks and the Warriors. What, what a matchup. Yeah, Merrimack and UMass Lowell played twice at the end of the season. Merrimack won... Uh, both of those games, uh, the first one in Lowell and then the second one at home. Uh, you know, I can't help but think back to last year when we had the same scenario. Merrimack swept UMass Lowell in the uh, regular season, and then Lowell won 7-2 to two in the playoffs at the Songus Arena. So it's very hard, as you know, Ken, to defeat a team three times in a row. UMass Lowell, again, this time of year, they're very dangerous. They've got one of the best coaches in college hockey in Norm Bazan. And uh, I think it's going to be just a tremendous battle. And I'm hopeful that uh, Merrimack can uh, come through with a victory on Friday night. Well, I, I know you are to uh, put them into the championship game on uh, Saturday and uh, an automatic berth for the NCAA tournament. Yeah, you know, obviously that's the most desired way to get in. Merrimack right now sits at number 14 nationally in the pairwise, so... I think uh, they're in pretty good shape, but they're certainly not guaranteed. I think even if Merrimack loses on Friday night, uh, uh, they would drop only to number 15 in the pairwise. So uh, the Warriors uh, are in a good spot right now for the national tournament. and uh, But, uh, you know, they would like to have that automatic bid for sure. When was the last time they were in the NCAAs, John? Well, uh, in, in the Division One era, it's only happened one time. Yeah. And uh, that was that season, magical season back in 2010-11 when uh, Merrimack played for the Hockey East Championship and uh, then went to the uh, uh, arena up there in Manchester. What is it, What is that arena called now, It's, now, it's it? now SNHU Arena. It was the Verizon Wireless uh, at that time, but now it's SNHU Arena. Right, so, yeah. right. So that uh, obviously now SNHU Arena is one of the four regional sites. Right for the uh, upcoming NCAA tournament. So the regional sites are uh, Manchester. You also have Bridgeport, Connecticut. You've got Allentown, Pennsylvania, and uh, Fargo, North Dakota. So the teams that uh, wind up uh, qualifying for the tournament will have to watch the selection show on March 19th to determine uh, who they'll be playing and where they will be going. So uh, hopefully Merrimack will be involved in that process. And how many teams go to the NCAA hockey tournament? Yeah, 16. 16. yeah, six six conferences. Each of the champions get the automatic bid, and then the other ten spots are the at-large uh, bid, uh, which is decided by the pairwise and the uh, men's hockey committee. So you you think that it's not like the NCAA men's basketball tournament where now sixty-eight go. It's only sixteen. So you think Merrimack's in uh, in pretty good shape, depend regardless of what happens on Friday. 
Well, I'd like to think so. Um, yeah. You know, uh, my good friend Mike McMahon, who writes for the MacReport.com, uh, he has a detailed breakdown of where it stands at the moment. I encourage people to check out his work. But, uh, yeah, hopefully we're in a good spot. Hopefully we can continue the momentum on Friday. I hope so as well, John Leahy. I I want to see you get to the NCAA tournament without question. Thank you, Ken. I appreciate it. I look forward to seeing you Wednesday night as well. At at Area 23. All right, John, we'll be playing some Irish tunes on uh, Wednesday night at Area 23. John, thanks for joining us this morning. Ken, it's always a pleasure. Have a great week. All right, you as well. We'll see you Wednesday. Very good. Thank you. Uh, All right, John. And uh, folks, thanks for joining us today here on uh, Kale & Company. Our thanks to John Leahy. Our thanks to Professor Randall Balmer, author of the book, Redeemer, The Life of Jimmy Carter. That'll do it for this edition of Kale & Company. Batten down the hatches. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. And uh, Northeast Delta Dental has individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. Learn more and find your plan at DeltaDentalCoversMe.com. Have a great Monday, everyone. Thanks for listening. <laughs>